Welcome to the middle of the air. Well, this time, on the, at the middle of the air, we're going to sort of turn the tables because I myself have a new book coming out called As the Crow Dies. And my good friend Tim Yoakum agreed to be an interviewer. And Tim is a, not only a good friend, but he's a scholar, was a professor at Rollins College. And um, so he's going to take over as the interviewer this week. I'm sitting down with Ken Butcher. This is Tim Yoakum. Uh to discuss his most recent novel, his third, in fact, entitled As the Crow Dies. First of all, Ken, uh, for those of you who may not know, you have an engineering degree and you worked mostly in materials research. I'm curious, how is it that you are now writing novels? Well, I actually have a kind of a complicated answer to that question because I think when you work in a research lab, you end up doing, making up a lot of stories, so to speak. So if you think about, for instance, you know what you learned in school about the scientific method where you're working on a problem and you research it a little bit and then you might come up with a theory or a hypothesis about what might work. Uh, yeah. Well, and then the thing about a research lab is you don't just make that up and assume it's right or assume it's wrong. You get to go out and you get to experiment and you find out whether it's right or wrong. Right. What most people don't realize is, that don't work in a research lab, is you're almost always wrong. <laughs> so you get to go make up another hypothesis. Now if you go back and you substitute the word story for hypothesis, which it really is, a hypothesis is just a story you made up, maybe about you know technical variables like what X is going to affect Y, so if I increase X, Y will increase. That's just, that's just kind of a story. <laughs> yes. and, you find, and the thing is, so since I worked in a research lab, I get to make up lots of these stories. And so by the end of my career, I've probably made up thousands of more stories than most people get to make up in their lives. <laughs> so it's a pretty good, pretty good um, preparation, actually, I would argue, for... Um, making novels. Right, okay, well that's fascinating <laughs> and enlightening to me, um, knowing and having seen some of what you've done, some of your lab work. Um, I have a question about uh, your past writing, and as I know you've written a couple of books already, The Middle of the Air, published in 2009, involved the disappearance of a truck hauling nuclear materials near Asheville, North mm -hmm. Carolina. Right. And your second book, The Dream of St. Ursula, from 2014, involved the smuggling of illegal aliens into the U.S. through the Vir Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. And both of, both of books, both of which I have enjoyed, and they both blended drama, mystery, and humor and in both of these, the fictional Colebrook family was instrumental in solving the mystery, and they turned out to be an engaging and, I think, an energetic group. In this latest novel, they don't appear, and we have detectives Iris Siegel and Dinah Rudisill of the Asheville Police Department, and they take the case, and they likewise are an engaging team. 
Would you tell us a little bit about this latest novel and whether you consider it, therefore, a sequel to those first two? Well, um, it, it, I would not consider it a sequel. Um, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't uh, involve the Colebrook family, which the first two books did. Right. Except there's a tiny little um, nod to James Colebrook, and it, because he's the one that paints the picture that's in the psychologist's office. Yes, that's so right. So there's just a kind of almost like an inside joke for people that... Just a little reminder of those first two. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I wanted to just branch off and do something, you know, pretty much unrelated to the other books. So this is a mystery book, like you, like we've said, and like you mentioned, uh, every any mystery book has detectives. In this case, the detectives are Siegel, Iris Siegel, and Dinah Rudiso. Now Siegel is an experienced detective, and uh, but, however, he's been off duty for a couple of years because he was injured. And the story does get into a little bit about how he was injured eventually in, in the past. He's at a position where he's more or less recovered physically. Um, he's still suffering mentally, probably with uh, PTSD a little bit. But he's just coming back on the job. And um, Dinah Rudisil, a very athletic lady, is um, assigned to be his partner. And the idea is that she'll help him with the physical part of the job, and at the same time, she'll be learning the, the skills and techniques of detective work from him. So they're being assigned very uh, minor kind of uh, tasks, and a body is found in the French Broad River. So they presume it to be a drowning, and they're assigned to following up on it. Turns out it's not a drowning, it's a murder. Then things escalate bit by bit from there. Um, turns out it's not just a murder. It's a, more of like a military type of assassination. Um, another person ends up getting murdered. And then both of these people that were murdered were associated with a company called Creatures 2.0, which, which is a company that trains, they've had a sort of breakthrough in training animals that can do almost human-like things. Um, the, the head of that company, uh, whose name is Francis Ella, has disappeared. He's gone away on a project. No one knows where he is. Obviously, he's a. They they very much want to talk to him um, because it, he might even be implicated in the murders, and that's uh, that's part of the mystery of what's going on there. And throughout the story, you meet some of these animals primarily a crow named Richard that he's trained. And um, that's part of, in addition to a romp around the city, that you also meet a lot of these uh, animals along the way. And it builds up to um, not just murders, but sort of international intrigue and importance bit by bit. The um, detectives themselves become threatened and um, the action just ratchets up and up and up until the resolution at the end. Right, okay. Um, as I'm familiar with the city of Asheville, and many of your readers will be, and they'll enjoy many of the references in this book to actual locations in one of the most vibrant parts of Asheville, uh, the area commercial hub and residential hub around 
the Grove Arcade. Did you choose Asheville and this area as your setting, and why did you choose that? And what was your thinking in identifying all those real places? Well, um, I, I like Asheville a lot. I've spent a lot of time up there. My oldest son lives up there and actually used to live in the Grove Arcade itself. So I've always been impressed with that. Um, I think in general, you know, as I, when I started writing originally, I, one of the things I thought about was uh, what are some of my favorite authors and, and uh, fav- favorite books. And one of, the, one of my favorites is uh, a guy named Tony Hillerman who mm-hmm. wrote books about that were set in the Southwest. And actually, incidentally, his daughter Anne is now, has now picked up that gauntlet and she's writing books with the same characters in the same setting. But anyway, what I, one of the things I really liked about his books and Anne's books after him was how uh, much the setting is involved in the plot of the book. So I always knew I wanted to set it in places that I find interesting and make the setting a, a big part of the plot. And Asheville, I think, is just a, a fascinating and fun place. And um, I wanted to use real places for the most part. Yeah, I I felt in reading it that this, the city and the part of the city you, that is the setting almost becomes a, another character. It has personality. Anyone who's been there will immediately engage with that. And uh, I think that's a plus. I hope so. A big plus for the novel. So, I have a few questions about your writing style and your practice, and I'm wondering, which you've mentioned already, some influences, and what's your uh, writing practice like? Well, um, what I do, in fact, is get up every morning and write in the morning, and that that took me a while to figure that out. (laughs) When I first started writing, I, I always thought I'd do it in the evening, I'd do all my other things, my engineering, whatever else I business I had to do, take care of, or family things. And then in the evening, I would write. And that just, that's one of the things I found just never worked out. <laughs> right. And um, finding it not working out, I just decided I'm going to have to put this up front in the morning when I have energy and focus. And, yes. and that's, that's what I found personally um, worked out. Yeah. Okay. I, I think many writers would say the same thing. So I understand that. Um, Do you, I know you're very detailed. You described the influence of engineering already. Um, Does that have some influence on your plot design? Do you outline the plot and characters and so on before you start? I would, that's another kind of idea I had to deal with. I really, really wanted to completely outline Mm -hmm. a book chapter by chapter, and then sit down and just write it. And it just never worked out. Um, And it still hasn't worked out, no matter how much I try to make that work. Right. Um, It seems like I need to get into it, into the action, at least to to a certain extent, before I start getting more ideas and figure out the plot. So um, what I end up doing... um, is having some idea of how to start the book off usually and get it rolling and get used to the characters as they develop in my mind and then just piece by piece bring the plot together. And very often I'll, I'll be able to like sit down and figure out like 
two or three scenes or, or two or three or four scenes in advance, at least generally what I want to be doing, um, and then work on those. It's a, it's a little bit like doing, for me, it's like doing a crossword puzzle. Uh, I was never able to do crossword puzzles. And I said to my friend, one of my friends one time, a few years ago, I said, I'm just, I completely, you know, I get, I started uh, one across and can't figure that out and two across and I can't. So after three or four of these, I just give up and don't do it. And she said, that's not how you do a crossword. You go down and figure out. There's always a handful of easy ones. Right. And then once you do that, you can, the picture starts to form. And at least you can have more clues about what um, the what you know the letters in the in the mystery word are going to be, and little by little you'll have a better chance of doing it. And that's kind of how my plots come together, piece by piece, like that. Yeah. So with the best, I think most people, and I've done a little writing, uh, you start with best laid plans, and things emerge organically that you, exactly as you go along, yep. the characters and events. So that's that sounds like what it works the way it works with you, uh, and that makes me think of the editing process, your own editing process, for example, um, or third parties, anyone else. What's that like? Well, um, that's a kind of a learning experience too. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when I first started writing. I didn't have a very good idea of what that should look like. Um, and so it's it just a matter of me reading back over what I what I had written, um, straightening out things, straightening out parts that seemed awkward, uh, fixing up sentences, maybe going back and realizing I needed to, um, you know, have an influence of a character more in a certain part of the book and right. figuring out how to work that in. Right. Um, then between between writing Dream of St. Ursula and writing this book, I got I found this um great book called Um The Story Grid. And the Story Grid is is a actual uh it was written by a guy named uh Coyne and he was an editor for many, many years, uh, and at the big publishing companies. What and was then he had name again? Name again? Coin, coin, coin. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his first name. Um, That's okay. Anyway, he had written this book called The Story Grid, and in it he's figured out that when he was when he was a new editor, he realized there were no books on editing, <laughs> um, and there were no, there's no way to he had no way good way to learn the the art of, or the science of editing. And so he kind of made it up himself. He got guidance from um, some old, older editors. And he put together this system of, um, you could sort of think of it as a checklist. Right. To go over and to check the main elements of a story. And one, one right. of the things, it, it gives you, uh, for me, it was a very insightful book. And, it, and if nothing else, it gives you a very concrete process to go through in your editing process, Absolutely. it doesn't necessarily make it easy, but it but it does uh, more systematically turn up um, problems that you then have to go back and figure out how to fix. Right. But at yeah. least it, at least it's a concrete process. Right. And I would recommend that to any writer. That's the coin, is the yeah. name. Yeah. Okay. And that's the story grid. The story grid. Very good. Thank you.
Um, you've got a new publisher, I guess, and I'm wondering how that how that was. How's it been to work? It's been really good to publisher. work. Pace Publishing, um, they have uh, they've really put a lot of time and effort into it. Right. Uh, I was really pleased by the cover design that they came up with. Right. I yeah. originally thought, tossed out some ideas, which they well they used they used the symbol of the crow. That's for sure. Um, and I had some other ideas, and I have to admit that what they came up with, the simplicity of what they came up with, I think is really makes the the cover pretty attractive. Yes. In my opinion, anyway. Yes, it is a nice attractive. Grabs your attention, definitely. Well, I have uh, a few questions about your uh, practical questions um, about what's next for you. Um, do you have other Asheville mysteries or other mysteries or other books in the pipeline or thoughts? Yeah, when I, um, you know, I finished uh, my draft of of the, the crow story here, the, as the crow dies, and got it off to an editor, got it off to the publishers, and so that takes a process of several months. And I started on another book, um, and this book that I started on was, um, I guess, well, we'll see how it ends up. But but my intention was it for it to be sort of a coming of age romance story. It involved people working in a chocolate and ice cream shop. Surprising. <laughs> Which is obviously um, inspired by my wife's shop that she yes. used to own. Um, so I got, I don't know, twenty or 30,000 words into that. And that's when the, the crow, the, as the crow dies, was accepted. And so I had my foot in two different worlds, uh, and I, it, was, it wasn't working out for me. So, I, but I didn't want to stop writing while I'm editing the Crow book uh, for, with the with the publisher. So I decided, and and they brought up the idea of making it into a series, possibly. Um, so I decided to to put the other book on hold, which is probably a terrible idea in in general, uh, yes. to not finish what you started. But anyway, for that reason, since I was feeling kind of split um, mentally between the two. I started writing another another uh, book that is set in Asheville and and involves Ira and and Dinah as the detectives. And I, actually, I was going to write a sequel, but I actually ended up starting to write a prequel. So the oh, prequel gets into how they first meet and what's going on that leads up to. And of course, one of the things that that you find out about Ira Siegel right in the beginning of the book, is that he's been injured. Right. So it gets more into how he was injured and what the story was behind that. I thought th that was fascinating, the backstories of, of Ira uh, during the war. I guess it was the war in uh, Cambodia? No, when, when, where, where was he injured? Well, he was injured in the line of duty in, as, a, as a policeman in Asheville. Oh. Dinah was the one that was in the service before. She was in the service yeah. before. Sorry about that. In Iraq and Afghanistan. And the thing that's fascinating is she's a roller derby star. Right. Well, that's that's pretty cool, too. I mean, how'd that get going? But anyway. She was based on, actually, or I, I shouldn't say based on. She was inspired by a trainer that used to work at, at a gym I used to go to. Oh wow! I didn't really know her, I, but I would I would see her there, and she was you know uh -huh. helping people work out and giving instruction, 
And she was just this very extremely athletic uh, but small right. lady. Right. With big, big bushy hair, like I described <laughs> Donna. And she was, uh, I, she was kind of an inspiring person. And I, and, um, and I, I heard from someone that she was a drill sergeant in the army before, at some point in her past. So that kind of got the, the ball rolling around right. the idea of, of having her, having this injured male policeman right. being helped with the physical aspects of the job by, by a female. Yes, and those prequels of backstories would be very interesting because the characters themselves, when they first appear, you get a little of that, as you said, but uh, just enough to whet your appetite. Right. So that would be great. Um, another, I guess, practical question. Uh, will you will you be doing any events at bookstores to promote this book in the future, do you think? Well, that's an interesting question, you know, with the... COVID virus, uh, yeah, that's true. Pretty much putting a blanket on everything. Yeah. Right now, we haven't scheduled any appearances for the simple reason that you know, right? Uh, everyone's quarantined. So the bookstores are just beginning to open up. So yeah. there's some. Um, they're doing some um, online kind of uh, events. I might end up scheduling some of those, or who knows? In the future, who knows how it's going to play out? Right. Uh, I might be able to, you know, come to bookstores and at least meet people and sign books. Hopefully, I love I love doing that. So, so there will be, be a website though. I mean, maybe there's a website where they can follow you or purchase couple, the book. Or yeah, there's a couple websites. Um, my author website is just kennethbutcher.com. So that has okay. a few blogs. I don't keep up with it very much, but uh, there'll there'll be some blogs on there uh, uh-huh. about this book and the previous books. Um, and then, of course, this podcast, uh, themiddleoftheair.com, right. is the podcast website. So those are a couple places. As far as buying the book is concerned, I always encourage people to support their local independent bookstores. So in this area, I guess Mal- Malaprops would be the closest. But, of course, it's available on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble. And right, okay. it will, Or it will be available come... July or June the 2nd. Okay. June the 2nd. June But 2nd. it can be pre-ordered right now. All right. Well, that is a pretty thorough rundown in a short time. And I appreciate very much you sitting for this interview. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on The Middle of the Air. Thanks you, Ken. Thanks to you very much.